The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. End of the beginning or beginning of the end? This is Thursday, February 28th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Nice country you've got there. Be a shame if anything happened to it. Russia's government-owned television news this week said that Moscow could turn the U.S. into radioactive ash. It said that using hypersonic missiles that travel more than five times the speed of sound, it could strike the Pentagon and or the presidential retreat at Camp David, Maryland, inside of five minutes from submarines just outside U.S. waters. The Kremlin says it's not threatening anyone for now. Specifically, it says that if the U.S. uses its pullout from a nuclear arms deal to create or place new medium-range nuclear missiles in Europe, then Russia says it will be ready for a new Cuban missile-style crisis. The decision to pull out of the nuclear arms deal signed by President Ronald Reagan was made by the current president. This latest heart-stopping development from Russia puts a chilling context on everything else you're about to hear. A former lawyer for Richard Nixon dropped a bombshell in congressional testimony that was the beginning of the end for that president. Yesterday, a former lawyer for Donald Trump took that a step farther. Michael Cohen brought evidence, documents, including a check from Trump's personal account and signed on March 17, 2017 by Donald J. Trump, who was by then the sitting president of the United States. Cohen quoted Trump as saying it was partial reimbursement for the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, one of a series of payments to cover that $130,000. Paid to avoid harm to the campaign, the money becomes an illegal unregistered campaign contribution, a felony worthy of impeachment when the payoff is signed by a sitting president. Cohen said the hardest part for him was lying to Melania, calling her a kind, good person he greatly respects. Quoting Cohen, she did not deserve that. Cohen testified that Trump lied to the American people when he said and instructed Cohen to say that Trump had no business in Russia. Cohen said Trump was an active part of the negotiations to build a Trump Tower in Moscow well into the campaign. Cohen says that during the Iowa caucuses, Trump repeatedly asked him, how's it going in Russia? He testified that the sitting president had advanced knowledge of both the Trump Tower in New York meeting with Russians and the WikiLeaks dump of Democratic emails stolen by Russia. Cohen said he overheard a speakerphone conversation in which Roger Stone informed Trump that WikiLeaks was about to dump emails damaging to Hillary Clinton. Cohen says Trump responded by saying, wouldn't that be great? To news of the Trump Tower meeting the president's denied knowledge of, Trump responded, okay, good, let me know. Under oath, Cohen hinted that there is another investigation involving Trump that had not been discussed at yesterday's hearing, one in which he says Trump clearly broke the law. He said the matter was under investigation by the federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York and that he couldn't talk about it any further. It wouldn't be about the inauguration or campaign finance laws, which were covered in the hearing. This other investigation would also have nothing to do with anything being investigated by Robert Mueller. It would appear to involve the Trump organization, of which Cohen was a subsidiary. Cohen testified that Trump never thought he would win the election and repeatedly that the campaign was a big infomercial for himself and his business. Cohen quotes Trump as calling it, quote, the greatest infomercial in political history. Michael Cohen testified that Trump directed him to write letters to Trump's schools, threatening them not to release his grades or IQ scores. Cohen brought an example of those letters. He says he can bring more. 
He testified that Trump directed him not to answer media questions about the medical deferment that kept Trump from being drafted into the Vietnam War, allegedly saying, you think I'm stupid? I wasn't going to Vietnam. Looking into the camera because he knew Trump was watching from Vietnam, Cohen said he found it ironic that, quote, you are in Vietnam right now. Cohen testified that Trump is a racist, once saying black people would never vote for him, quote, because they are too stupid. And challenging Cohen to name one country with a black leader that wasn't a shithole while Obama was president. That's a quote. Driving through a distressed neighborhood in Chicago, Trump reportedly said to Cohen that only black people could live that way. He also called the president a con man and a cheat. And while Democrats on the committee questioned Cohen about a range of concerns, Republicans focused on discrediting the witness, one even using the phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire. Cohen sat patiently for nearly eight hours as he named names and answering Democrats' calmly stated questions and fending off a Republican barrage of shouted accusations that Cohen was just telling more lies. Cohen had appeared in spite of public apparent threats by both Trump and Rudy Giuliani to drag Cohen's family through the mud and to fire up Trump supporters. A Republican congressman from Florida is now under investigation by the State Bar Association over his tweet that threatened Cohen, alluding to alleged girlfriends and asking whether Cohen's wife would be faithful while he was in prison. The threat came in the words, she's about to learn a lot. Florida's Matt Gates has since apologized and removed the tweet, but his office says the bar investigates even the trivial. Gates, however, remains under investigation, and the potential crime he's facing is serious. At times defending his former boss, Michael Cohen closed out yesterday's dramatic testimony by challenging a wide range of Trump policies and behaviors and urging Trump supporters not to be misled into misery as he has been. And during an emotional closing speech by committee chairman Elijah Cummings, Cohen wiped away tears, especially when he listened to how federal prisoners treat newcomers who've been tagged as rats, as Trump has labeled Cohen. And although he had no evidence to offer, Cohen says his familiarity with Trump's win-at-all-cost mentality led him to be suspicious that Trump did in fact enjoy help from Russia in his presidential campaign. Yesterday's Michael Cohen hearing may be remembered as what will turn out to be the start of the impeachment of Donald Trump. This may have been the first hearing. The day before, and again today, Cohen is testifying behind closed doors. Tuesday, it was the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee where Cohen likely faced the same attacks on his credibility. And today, Cohen testifies in secret with the House Intelligence Committee. And although there will be redactions to protect ongoing investigations and matters of national security, we can expect to see transcripts from those closed-door sessions, and even with redactions, they may tell us even more. In just two months, Michael Cohen heads for a three-year prison sentence for his own selfish crimes, about which he also lied, as he now seeks redemption through endless cooperation with investigators at all levels. He delivered passionate apologies to the members of Congress, to the American people, to his own immediate family, and to his parents. A man as close to the president as any has leveled serious criminal accusations against that president and provided documented evidence. As the Mueller investigation continues, as it will until that report drops, Congress will now also investigate. On the eve of the Cohen hearing, former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder wrote that constitutionally, a sitting president can be indicted. For the vast majority of concerned Americans, it's been all about the Mueller report. 
What have we learned in 19 months since a respected Republican ex-Marine and FBI director was named special counsel to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 election and other crimes related to that interference? Robert S. Mueller III is still believed to be very close to finishing his report, and at least two-thirds of the country is anxious, yes, anxious, to hear it. As it turns out, the Mueller report will not be published this week after all, but nearly everyone agrees it is nearly done. There will likely be efforts to keep us from seeing it, and there will definitely be efforts to make sure that we do. Smart money is on. We will see the report. The odds are nearly as good that Mueller will, on completion of that report, unseal those sealed indictments and file more charges or recommend to other federal prosecutors that more charges be filed. It appears Mueller has already shared evidence and other information with those other federal prosecutors. And Mueller's grand jury remains on call until sometime in July. Even if the Mueller report were finished today, there are hurdles to cross for us to see it. Mueller is subject to the Department of Justice rules, which require him to turn over to the Attorney General a confidential report on who was charged and who was investigated but not charged. The Attorney General, newly confirmed William Barr, then has to write a summary of that report and send it to Congress. That's the law. But the Democrats who control the House want to see the entire report and any documents Mueller may attach to that report. It isn't clear how Attorney General Barr will respond to that. Barr has said he'll be as transparent as possible, but that's vague in light of the anti-Mueller probe memo he wrote to the White House that ultimately got him Jeff Sessions' old job. If Barr refuses, congressional Democrats will pounce. The chairs of six different House committees have already joined forces to say, quote, In the strongest possible terms, our expectation is that the Department of Justice will release to the public the report Special Counsel Mueller submits to you without delay and to the maximum extent allowed by law. If Attorney General Barr leaves anything out of his report, House Democrats say they will demand to know why. But one of the key phrases in their demand is, without delay. Democrats worry that a delay could mean Barr was trying to cover up some of Mueller's findings. House Democrats plan to demand that the Justice Department it oversees preserve all records and documents related to that investigation. They also plan to continue a precedent set by House Republicans who demanded they be given classified and law enforcement sensitive information to investigate the FBI's work when Republicans controlled Congress. And it would seem hypocritical for Barr to withhold any of that since his department had provided those kinds of confidential documents in a Republican-controlled investigation of Hillary Clinton's private email server. Specifically, the precedent was set by former FBI Director James Comey, who bent over backwards to supply House Republicans with briefings, the transcripts of witness interviews, and more in that Clinton email probe. Trump himself declassified a secret surveillance warrant. Even Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley got to see classified data after he said he wouldn't vote to confirm Rod Rosenstein without seeing the classified Russia stuff first. It's a bad precedent for law enforcement in terms of protecting its confidential informants alone, but Republicans let that genie out of the bottle and Democrats now plan to employ it. Their demands may or may not work since William Barr has made it clear he plans to stop this bad precedent here and now. If that happens... The House committee say they will subpoena the report and those related documents. They can also subpoena the man who wrote it. 
We will bring Bob Mueller in to testify before Congress, says Judiciary Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. But Schiff doesn't think Attorney General Barr will let it go that far. In the end, says Schiff, I think the department understands they're going to have to make this public, adding, I think Barr will ultimately understand that as well. We are going to get to the bottom of this, said Schiff. And while it may soon be the end of the Mueller probe, the investigating will not be over. Investigations will continue in various federal jurisdictions, including Washington, D.C. and New York, where Trump's business is based. State investigations are underway with the aim of convicting those who might otherwise escape punishment by way of a presidential pardon. And Mueller's report lives on in Congress. When Watergate Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski presented Congress with his report, it gave lawmakers a roadmap to follow pointing to possible witnesses and what they might be asked under oath. With the Mueller probe over, House Democrats can call witnesses they couldn't during the special prosecutor's investigation. They can even call former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn now, who was the first to give Mueller what's been described as substantial cooperation. And they can still call the very cooperative Rick Gates, Trump's former deputy campaign manager and the right-hand man to Paul Manafort. And they can do all of that while a court fight over release of the Mueller report is underway. House Democrats say they won't wait for the Mueller report, won't wait for the courts to decide when it comes to pursuing their own investigations. And as the oversight part of our government, the lawmakers can investigate things that Robert Mueller's Russia probe could not. The heads of those six House Democratic committees who wrote a joint letter to Attorney General William Barr demanding he make the Mueller report public added this reminder... The president, they wrote, is not above the law. Even the Republican-led Senate may be getting in on this. The Senate Intelligence Committee is keen to interview an American businessman who's had a long-time business relationship with Trump, an American based in Moscow who can reportedly shed light on leverage Russia may have over Trump dating back to the 1990s. David Giovannis has been on the committee's witness list for months as it, too, investigates the Russian attack on the 2016 election that was in favor of Trump and against his opponents. Giovannis worked for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, who was in contact with Paul Manafort. Giovannis also helped organize Trump's 1996 trip to Russia to pursue a Trump Tower in Moscow. The House Intelligence Committee also wants to talk with Giovannis as it investigates Trump's business dealings and apparent campaign law violations based on information volunteered last month by Michael Cohen as he continued to try for a further reduction in his sentence. What Cohen offered up may have been valuable since a judge agreed to delay Cohen's sentencing to make way for both a shoulder surgery and Cohen's new testimony for Congress. Congressional watchdog committees can investigate Trump's finances. Trump cannot draw a red line there for Congress, as he tried to do with the Mueller probe, another place Congress can go that Mueller could not. And Congress wants to know why Deutsche Bank was the only New York bank that would still do business with Trump in spite of his reputation as a bad loan risk that has locked him out of other banks. He still owns Deutsche Bank $130 million. Quoting Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff, there's a heightened need to look into anything that could compromise the president or the country. We may be in two places at once right now. We are at the end of the beginning, and very possibly the beginning of the end for the Trump presidency. Unless he is pardoned, Trump's former campaign manager will likely die in prison. Manafort is about to turn 70. 
Mueller's D.C. prosecutors on Friday recommended a prison sentence of roughly 20 years for the crimes he's committed consecutive to the 20-some years Manafort may be facing in the federal court in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll hear that Virginia verdict first early next month. And Manafort faces an additional 10 years for the conspiracy and obstruction crimes he copped to last year as part of a plea deal he immediately betrayed. That deal is off. Those charges stick, and they also carry prison time. In theory, the Virginia judge could sentence Manafort to 80 years in prison. But judges usually go with the prosecutor's recommendation. Manafort would get credit for the nine months he's already served behind bars. In the Virginia case, Mueller made no specific sentencing recommendation, just that it should be a serious sentence that would also discourage such law-breaking by others. And such law-breaking it was, according to the Mueller team. The special prosecutor's sentencing recommendation for the Trump 2016 campaign manager called him a bold and hardened criminal who repeatedly and brazenly violated the law. Manafort lied, it said, to tax preparers, bookkeepers, banks, the Treasury Department, the Department of Justice's National Security Division, the FBI and the Special Counsel, the Grand Jury, members of Congress, members of the Executive Branch, and even to his own lawyers. Quoting the sentencing recommendation, Manafort chose repeatedly and knowingly to violate the law, whether the laws prescribed garden variety crimes such as tax fraud, money laundering, obstruction of justice, and bank fraud, or more esoteric laws that he nevertheless was intimately familiar with, such as the Foreign Agents Registration Act. The prosecutors continued. His criminal actions were bold, some of which were committed while under a spotlight due to his work as the campaign chairman and later while he was on bail from this court. Given the breadth of Manafort's criminal activity, the government has not located a comparable case with the unique array of crimes and aggravating factor, end quote. For his loyalty to the presidency of Donald Trump, Paul Manafort gets life in prison unless he gets a presidential pardon. Will Trump return the loyalty by granting that pardon? Hand-picked Attorney General William Barr was the attorney general who urged President George H.W. Bush to pardon six people in his administration's Iran-Contra scandal. And if Trump were to pardon Manafort, would it matter? if state prosecutors say they've got Manafort covered with state charges. And they might. Double jeopardy, you see, doesn't apply to new and different charges. State prosecutors are allowed to introduce into evidence the things to which Manafort has confessed in his plea deal with the feds. And with state convictions, Manafort would serve his time in a state prison that's exponentially worse than a federal pen. One way or another, it appears that a man endlessly loyal to Trump has sacrificed himself and gotten death in prison for it. The making of history is always more dramatic when it happens in our own time. And dramatic history is still being written. It's been a week of political defeat for Donald Trump in addition to the scandals in the enclosing Russia probe. Trump has run into a wall in his desperate bid to build a wall to deliver a campaign promise made by accident. This was the week that more than two dozen members of his own party, 26 former Republican lawmakers, called on current Republican lawmakers to vote down Trump's border emergency declaration. This was the week that 13 current Republican lawmakers did join Democrats in voting down that declaration in the U.S. House of Representatives. The law requires the Senate to now vote on it within the next three weeks. 
The declaration is also likely to be rebuked there, but with too few votes to override a certain presidential veto, putting the ultimate decision to the courts, which are also likely to strike down the declaration. This was the week that nearly six dozen former national security officials signed a letter saying there is no emergency at the border, and certainly not one that justifies robbing money from the defense budget. This 13-page letter signed by 58 former intelligence chiefs, diplomats, cabinet secretaries, and other security personnel calls Trump's border emergency, quote, at odds with the overwhelming evidence in the public record, including the administration's own data. That came after 16 states had sued to block the emergency declaration. This was the week we learned that more than 4,500 unaccompanied children had been reported as sexual abuse victims while in U.S. custody as of the end of 2018. Another 1,300 cases are on file at the Justice Department. At least 178 employees of Homeland Security have been identified as molesters. This was the week that House Oversight started investigating the family separations that have been part of Trump's anti-immigration policies, committee member Jerry Nadler referring to the family separations as kidnappings. Trump's policies, mostly based on falsehoods and fantasy, include the wall he will never get. And this was also the week that a former general testified for Congress that there is no emergency along the southern border that requires the use of the military. Air Force General Terrence O'Shaughnessy is the military commander in charge of protecting our homeland as head of the U.S. Northern Command and the North American Aerospace Defense Command. He says the real threat is Russia. An urgent threat, he called it. This is the chilling context in which this presidency and the election interference scandals occur. I'm glad I'm not the only one who noticed what Salon.com's Bob Seska noticed in the Cohen hearing. Thank you, Buzz. The line that kept circulating through my head Wednesday evening is the one spoken by Deep Throat in All the President's Men. The truth is, these aren't very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Weirdly, I'm not talking about Donald Trump and his inner circle this time, though the line certainly applies to them, too. I'm specifically referring to the Republican members of the House Oversight Committee who, rather than defending Trump, decided on the singular tactic of referencing Michael Cohen's conviction on perjury charges for lying to Congress. On the surface, the gambit was intended to emphasize that Cohen is a proven liar and therefore he lacks the credibility to be taken seriously. The tactic is part of the overall Trump approach. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead to Election Day. In other words, if the court of public opinion believes Trump is innocent while literally everyone else is lying, then Trump will likely retain his base when votes are cast in 2020. Naturally, the Red Hats will never abandon Trump anyway. If he makes it to the election without being removed from office, he can certainly count on at least 30% of the popular vote, roughly the same percentage who thinks there's a deep state coup in progress against their bloated messiah. Those votes are secured already, so therefore a desperate flailing attempt to convince them that Cohen is a liar was a totally wasted effort. Actually, it's more than a wasted effort. It's a totally counterproductive one. Not only did the oversight Republicans led by permanently ashen ranking member Jim Jordan and definitely not a racist racist Mark Meadows look like screaming dilettantes during the entirety of the hearing, but they also failed to actually defend Trump against any of the charges, especially in including the new ones from Cohen. 
Along those lines, Trump's former personal lawyer accused Trump of being a racist, a con man, and a crook who told Cohen to lie about payments made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Cohen also accused Trump of committing bank fraud, insurance fraud, and a variety of other federal crimes. It's also possible that Trump ordered his criminal defense lawyer, Jay Sekulow, to edit Cohen's congressional testimony so the entire team was on the same page regarding when negotiations for Trump Tower Moscow ended. Believe it or not, however, the oversight Republicans' most egregious tactical error wasn't any of the aforementioned blunders. If we read between the lines, it's easy to see the miscalculation. Jordan, Meadows, and the others repeatedly claimed Cohen lied to Congress. What they didn't say is that Cohen's lies involved exonerating Trump, claiming that his boss wasn't working on a real estate deal with the help of Russians close to Vladimir Putin. Put another way, Cohen lied to cover up Trump's negotiations with Russians at a time when he insisted he had no business with Russia. Perhaps this isn't what the Republicans wanted to highlight with their dumb little show on Wednesday, but there it is. Yes, Cohen lied. He lied when he said Trump was innocent. Not a smart move by the oversight Republicans. Likewise, Cohen revealed during his testimony that he never went to Europe to negotiate on Trump's behalf, the Prague meeting noted in the Steele dossier. He also said he's not aware of any controlled substance abuse by Trump, and he said he didn't believe Trump punched Melania in an elevator, the alleged elevator tape. And Cohen made it clear that Trump hasn't paid for any health care procedures for people not in his immediate family. I took this to mean that Cohen isn't aware that Trump has paid for any abortions for his various mistresses, a question I suggested to the House Oversight Democrats on Tuesday. If Cohen is such a liar, was he lying about Trump being abusive to Melania or perhaps the controlled substance thing? I don't believe he lied about those details, but do Jordan and the others believe Cohen was telling the truth when it came down to good news for Trump? We'd have to ask them, and I hope someone goes there, given how the entire GOP argument was centered around Cohen being a pathological liar. During the hearing, by the way, the Republicans displayed a placard with a photo of Cohen and the bold text, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. It was slightly less childish than their actual behavior and tactics in the room. What was their plan B? Wet willies and purple nurples? With defenders like these, who needs haters? Contrary to the Republicans in attendance, Michael Cohen and the House Democrats made history in that room, and I'd be remiss if I didn't give credit to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was particularly well-prepared and whose questions were among the most relevant to the criminal proceedings against Trump and his co-conspirators. Meanwhile, if I were the president or Donald Trump Jr., I'd get very little sleep tonight or through the rest of the year for that matter. The odds of prison sentences for both junior and senior seem to have improved significantly this week. And no, these aren't very bright guys, and things are more out of hand than they've ever been. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, my friend. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash show or... Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday, and I'll join him, Jody Hamilton, and David Ferguson for a special Cohen edition of the Bob Seska Show this afternoon. Before Trump left for Vietnam to meet again with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, aides to the president told Politico Trump stands alone in believing he can persuade Kim to give up his nuclear arsenal. And some worried that not only would the meeting produce no results, which it didn't, 
but they also feared their boss would be outfoxed by Kim. They were afraid Kim would persuade Trump to pull most or all of our troops out of vitally strategic South Korea. They worried Trump would revive empty promises and again declare a big victory. A big victory is what Trump feels he needs right now, which already put him in a weakened bargaining position. Kim had everything to gain by at least compromising on his nuclear arsenal, but nothing to lose if he didn't get what he wants. What he wants is the kind of economic development he's seeing right now in Vietnam, which has normalized relations with the U.S., and Kim wants a thriving economy, something North Korea desperately needs to feed its people. But that's something Kim and his people have already lived without. It was Trump more than North Korea who needed a victory as the Russia investigation awaits him upon his return. Trump was headed home this morning empty-handed, his much-touted talks with Kim ending abruptly. Kim had demanded that all worldwide economic sanctions against his country be dropped before he would lift a finger to denuclearize. Trump had hoped to leave Vietnam with a denuclearization agreement and maybe a declaration to officially end the Korean War. But Trump's mission had failed, another in a series of failures, defeats, and setbacks for this president this week. Trump returns home a severely weakened president. Early last year, Donald Trump referred to Kim Jong-un as a maniac and little rocket man was threatening to, quote, totally destroy North Korea. And he may again after these talks. But by April of last year, Trump's tone changed dramatically. Just before his first meeting with the North Korean leader, Trump called Kim very open and very honorable. In June after that meeting, he praised Kim as a talented negotiator and said he looked forward to a second meeting. He told Fox News that Kim is, quote, the head of a country, and I mean he's the strong head, adding, don't let anyone think anything different. He speaks and his people sit up at attention. And then Trump added one more thing that set off warning bells in people who worry about his love of authoritarian rule. I want my people to do the same, he said. Later, he insisted he was kidding, telling a reporter, you don't understand sarcasm. But in the same interview, Trump had again showered praise on Kim Jong-un and said, it's great to give him credibility. In September of last year, Trump praised Kim again in a speech to the United Nations General Assembly. That's when he called Chairman Kim courageous. Later that week, at one of his midterm campaign rallies, he told his supporters that he and Kim, quote, fell in love because of Kim's, quoting again, beautiful letters. Trump says negotiations with Kim were tough, but added, and then we fell in love, okay? No, really, he wrote me beautiful letters. We fell in love. So how did we get from point A, maniacal rocket man, to point B, we fell in love? Trump doesn't listen to the experts. He doesn't listen to his own people. So who put this idea about the North Korean dictator being such a great guy into Trump's head? We rewind to 2017 for the answer, when North Korea successfully test-fired an intercontinental ballistic missile. U.S. intelligence informed the president of the test, but he didn't believe them, calling it a hoax. As former acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe explained last week, he thought North Korea didn't have the capability to launch such missiles. McCabe continued, he said he knew this because Vladimir Putin had told him so. Trump again believed Putin over his own intelligence experts. The Wall Street Journal reported last year that the reason Trump said he would stop the joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea is because Putin had suggested it as a way to soften the North Korean leader. 
So Trump announced an end to those exercises without checking with our intelligence, without checking with our military or our diplomats, because Putin said he should. This week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the U.S. has been asking for the Kremlin's advice on how to deal with North Korea in this week's summit. Also this week, Trump said he believed Kim Jong-un when Kim said he knew nothing about his country's mistreatment of the late American Otto Warmbier. What could possibly go wrong? Just before this trip, the Secretary of State publicly said that North Korea still poses a nuclear threat, contradicting the president's claim that it doesn't. In defense of his boss, Mike Pompeo argued that Kim continues to show commitment to denuclearizing the Korean peninsula. That was before the trip. Besides, said Pompeo, that's not what he said, referring to the president. But on June 13th, Trump tweeted, and I quote, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. So that is what he said. But wait, there's more. Last month, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, testified for Congress, quote, North Korea will seek to retain its capabilities and unlikely to give up its nuclear weapons and production capabilities. Trump responded by saying Coates had been misquoted. And that didn't happen either. It's the lying again. And strangely, lying about our ally, South Korea, the one without Kim Jong-un. In a February 12th cabinet meeting, the Washington Post reports Trump said, South Korea, we defend them and lose a tremendous amount of money, billions of dollars a year defending them. South Korea is costing us $5 billion a year. We have to do better than that. He was still fired up from the previous night's rally in El Paso, where he told the Red Hats he had forced South Korea to pay another half billion dollars, which he claimed no one has ever thought of before. Eight days earlier, he told Face the Nation, you know, it's very expensive to keep troops there. You do know that. We have 40,000 troops in South Korea. It's very expensive. The U.S. military believes having troops in South Korea in cooperation with South Korea's military protects the lives of well over 51 million people, including nearly a quarter million Americans there. It's part of an agreement the two countries signed in 1953, and South Korea is still strategically important. Trump was again spreading falsehoods. South Korea does not cost us $5 billion a year. It's under a billion. And its defense spending has increased at a rate even faster than that of the U.S., so it is contributing. South Korea covered 90% of the cost of a new American military base that's worth about $11 billion, and it's now the biggest U.S. military base overseas. The new deal with South Korea wasn't done in two phone calls, as Trump claimed, but with rounds of negotiations, and South Korea is also just under a billion. We do not have 40,000 troops in South Korea. Trump missed it by well over 10,000. The actual number is 28,500. Fact checkers say the recent Trump claims about our ally South Korea are completely false. The question that remains is why? On Tuesday, we learned something we previously did not know about the midterm election this past November. On election day itself, the Pentagon's U.S. Cyber Command staged its first real operation. It shut down the Internet at a Russian troll farm as soon as the polls opened and kept it down for a couple more days. It could hardly be called a cyber attack by the U.S., more of a prank to send a message to Moscow. It was America's way of telling Russia there's a price to pay for messing with our elections, but without the damage of a more severe attack. 
On November 6, 2018, the Internet was shut down at the Kremlin's Internet Research Agency, the same troll farm that had spread disinformation through gullible Americans in 2016 and regularly ever since, including the 2018 midterms. There has been less Russian propaganda since 2016, including during the midterms. But when a cop kills a rapper, the Russians are online to stir up emotions. When neo-Nazis march in America, the Russians are there. When a Democrat launches a presidential campaign, the Russians are online trolling. The November shutdown of Russian trolls came about a month after our cyber command started texting, emailing, and direct messaging Russian hackers to let them know that the U.S. knows their real names, their online handles, and that they would be wise to stay out of U.S. affairs. The idea, of course, is to make sure 2016 never happens again. From missiles to messages, U.S. tension with Russia increases in the minds of everyone, except a president who has praised and believes Vladimir Putin. Trump has recently stepped up his attacks on our free press. His call for retribution against Saturday Night Live got the most coverage, but Trump simultaneously praised a libel lawsuit against the Washington Post and tweeted that the New York Times is, quote, the true enemy of the people. Enemy of the people was in all caps. No longer just cries of fake news. In their place, specific attacks on specific news outlets. All this in the same week, conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas urged his court to revoke the longstanding protection of news outlets from libel lawsuits. Trump's attack on the Times is a turnaround from Trump's decades-long desire to get the approval of his hometown newspaper. The Times publisher, Mr. Sulzberger, says... I have repeatedly told President Trump face-to-face there are mounting signs this incendiary rhetoric is encouraging threats and violence against journalists at home and abroad. One thing Trump did not tweet about this week was the arrest of an alleged homegrown terrorist. Coast Guard Lieutenant Christopher Hassan, who was found to have been harboring an arsenal while reading up on other domestic terrorists, the Unabomber, Virginia Tech, and others, including the man who killed 77 people in Norway eight years ago. Trump has praised law enforcement in situations involving alleged killers from outside the country, but Trump said nothing about this case. Nothing. And once again, no condemnation of the attempted act of terror. But this particular kind of terror doesn't help build his wall. It doesn't fit Trump's political agenda. Trump's silence on the case was heard round the country. In some cases, that silence carried an ongoing message. Awarded an Oscar for his passionate screenplay about racism, Spike Lee told the audience, the 2020 election is around the corner. Let's all mobilize. Let's be on the right side of history. Make the moral choice between love versus hate. In the movie Black Klansman, Lee had included Trump's failure to respond to the death of Heather Heyer at the hands of neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, where Trump said he observed very fine people on both sides. The next morning after the Oscars, Trump tweeted, Be nice if Spike Lee could read his notes, or better yet, not have notes at all when doing his racist hit on your president. Who's president? The president of his supporters, of course. The only group about which Trump has ever cared. Ryan Zinke isn't Trump's interior secretary anymore, but he's still in some very hot water. Prosecutors have started showing evidence to a grand jury that Zinke lied to federal investigators, including his own department's inspector general. 
The secret grand jury investigation reportedly began, centered on Zinke's decision not to grant a petition to two Native American tribes to operate a casino in Connecticut. The MGM Grand wanted those casino licenses instead. That's when the Department of the Interior's Inspector General went to work. It's a case federal prosecutors likely wouldn't have brought if they didn't believe they had a solid case because these types of cases are very hard for prosecutors to win unless they have airtight evidence. It's trickier in cases like this to prove that a person lied knowingly and willfully as opposed to just misstating a fact. What was Zinke allegedly lying about? Witnesses for the grand jury, who are free to talk about what went on while they were there, say Zinke had been asked if anyone had influenced his decision to say no to the Native American tribes and whether others in his department had advised him against the decision he made. Trump has, meanwhile, chosen an apparent criminal to run the U.S. Labor Department. Alex Acosta was the Miami federal prosecutor who freed millionaire Jeffrey Epstein after Epstein was found to have molested dozens of young girls and running a child prostitution ring for wealthy men who like their women to be between 13 and 16 years of age. A judge ruled Thursday that Trump's labor secretary pick, Alex Acosta, violated the law by not telling the victims he'd struck a plea deal with Epstein, allowing the alleged molester to escape federal charges. Victims' rights laws require the victims and or their families to be informed of any major developments in the case. Under Acosta, the victims and their parents were denied a chance to weigh in on the deal, much less Epstein's punishment. The Justice Department is still investigating Alex Acosta's possible professional misconduct, even as Acosta continues his path to the White House and the Trump cabinet. A staffer on the 2016 Trump campaign is suing the president for sexual harassment and equal pay discrimination. She says that when she first met him, he looked her up and down and said, oh, beautiful, beautiful, fantastic. Alva Johnson says it was August 24th, 2016, when Trump came out of an RV and she told him he was doing a great job. That's when she says he tried to kiss her square on the lips. She says it landed on the side of her mouth as she turned away. The White House has at least one witness to deny Johnson's claim, Trump campaign official Pam Bondi of Florida. Johnson says she told her mother, her stepfather, and her boyfriend about the incident the day it happened, and all three say that is true. Six weeks later, the Access Hollywood tape would drop where Trump says, you know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you. You can do anything. Two weeks after that, Johnson consulted a lawyer. Johnson apparently had her eyes on a job as the number two in command at the U.S. Embassy in Lisbon, Portugal. I've tried to let it go, says Johnson. I feel guilty, and the only thing I did was show up for work one day. She is the first woman since Trump took office to accuse him of unwanted sexual advances. She is the 22nd woman to make such an accusation. Trump still, however, faces a lawsuit from former Apprentice contestant Summer Zervos, who says he forcibly kissed and groped her. The Trump administration, meanwhile, continues to strip millions of dollars from Planned Parenthood, which delivers health care and family planning services for women. Friday, the Trump White House issued a new rule that could cut tens of millions of dollars from those services so that that money can be funneled into religion-based anti-abortion health care groups instead. It's a harsh blow to women, especially low-income and minority women, who need Planned Parenthood services the most. Unless and until a court stops it, 
The new rule goes into effect in mid-April. Donald Trump and the Republican Party are now so much a part of each other, they've practically become one and the same. Lest there be any Republican challengers to Trump's 2020 plans, the Republican National Committee has already thrown its undivided support to Trump. The vote was unanimous for a resolution calling his presidency effective. Quoting an Oklahoma delegate who sponsored the resolution, As you know, there's been so much belittling and that kind of thing going on. Washington elites attacking the president, and that's the focus of mine, to give him support, give him encouragement. The RNC did not vote to endorse Trump for 2020, leaving itself an out. But it certainly sounded like an endorsement before any Republican challengers could get their campaigns off the ground. It sounded like an endorsement to Trump, who tweeted his thanks to the RNC. Maryland's Larry Hogan, a very popular Republican governor in a very Democratic state, was also not happy to hear about the RNC vote. He called it unprecedented and even almost like a hostage situation. Party officials were indignant, quoting a spokeswoman, President Trump doesn't need any assistance to protect him from primary challenges. He has unprecedented support. Any effort to challenge President Trump in a primary is bound to go absolutely nowhere. End quote. The RNC vote came shortly after Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld announced he would challenge Trump as a Republican. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan has, or had been, thinking about it. Hogan wants to bring back the original Republicanism, not the new Coke version we're seeing today. His dad was the first Republican in Congress to call for the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And Governor Hogan says other Republicans have privately told him they like what he's doing and wishes they could say what he has said about Trump, including that the president is irrational. Hogan also says Trump's re-election numbers don't look so good. And he's right. A Washington Post-ABC News poll shows that only 28% of voters say they will definitely vote for Trump in 2020. That's fewer than one in three of us. 56% of us would definitely not vote for Trump in 2020 if he's the Republican nominee. Well over half the independent voters who often decide elections say they will definitely not vote for Trump. 59% say no to Trump among independents. Trump is far more disliked than was Obama at two years into his first term by about a 15-point margin. And that was before Michael Cohen's public testimony and before the release of the Mueller report. Trump 2020 officials are worried about the blue wave they saw in the midterms. They're worried about the poll numbers, worried about the legal shoes yet to drop, and worried that their candidate will apparently wing it heading into the campaign since he has no plan, as he does with so many things. They might also worry that more states are passing bills that require presidential candidates to release their tax returns if they hope to appear on those states' election ballots. The only strategy we've seen emerge from Trump 2020 so far and from Republicans is to attack Democrats' liberal positions as radical and crazy with hot-button issues including taxes, health care, and, of course, immigration and abortion. Trump's accused Democrats of wanting, raping, murderous gangs to pour over the Mexican border. He's warned of Democrats wanting to kill unborn and newborn babies. When Trump's temper tantrum shut down the government for 35 days, he tweeted the Democrats have made clear, quote, they value illegal immigrants more than hardworking Americans. 
And he put most of that in all caps, of course. The list goes on with two common threads to paint Democrats as insane liberals and to do it with complete fabrications and falsehoods. If one Democrat misspeaks, which happens, Republicans plan to pounce on it and paint the entire Democratic Party as having that misstated view. And Trump has the Fox News Channel ready and eager to help. Trump's 2020 campaign also has a lot of money. The campaign and its sister committees raised over $21 million in just the first three months of 2018, just in time for the presidential election cycle that began in January. As Democrats were just launching their committees, Trump's was already up and running and had just raked in another $21 million. He has already dusted Democrats in fundraising. Elizabeth Warren, for example, started her campaign on New Year's Eve with $11 million. Most of the money collected by Trump and Warren and others so far has come from small donors. 75% of Trump's donations are under 200 bucks, sent in by the Red Hats and other supporters. And most of the money raised by the candidate so far will be spent on the primaries. They'll all still have to raise more money for the general election. And while Trump may for now have the fundraising lead, and while his campaign war chest will be more than enough to beat any Republicans who challenge him... With numbers like these and with shoes about to drop, it's possible Trump cannot get reelected, even with all the money in the world. North Carolina Republican Mark Harris says he will not run in the redo of a November election to decide who gets a seat in Congress from his district. Harris says he's not running due to health problems and upcoming surgery and the recovery. He's already had a couple of strokes and a septic infection. But he's also been plagued recently by scandal and exposed by his son in dramatic sworn testimony. The lies and the cover-ups. Once an evangelical minister, the elder Harris ultimately admitted that his campaign had engaged in fraud and that there should be a new election. That election will be in the fall of this year, October probably, after a primary in late spring. The elections board had already thrown out the results of the November contest between Harris and Democrat Dan McCready, who will run again, and who, because of the recent Republican scandal there, will probably win. The investigation into election fraud in the Harris campaign continues, and he may face more than just medical problems. Yesterday, the political operative who arranged the illegal campaign activities for Harris was indicted and faces trial. Strong women, a concrete problem, tourists in space, and nudists on a roller coaster. In the final segment, up next. Thank you so much for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping all year round, whether you're at home or at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your everyday shopping button. I get a little commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchased through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just click the Amazon logo at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page. You bookmark that, and then on your desktop browser, you'll find the Amazon logo in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button there. And thank you. Chicago's next mayor will be an African-American woman. We just don't know which one yet. The old Chicago political machine personified in this race by William Daly 
was squeezed out by the two top vote-getters in Tuesday's election this week. 56-year-old former federal prosecutor Lori Lightfoot, who's anti-status quo, and Tony Preckwinkle, who is the status quo, running both the county board and the county's Democratic Party at age 71. Chicago got its first black mayor in Harold Washington and its first female mayor in Jane Byrne. Now, either Lightfoot or Periwinkle will be the first black woman in that powerful office. The runoff election is in April. May the best woman win. Strong women. In Kansas, a Republican lawmaker has withdrawn his name from an anti-LGBT bill and apologized. He did that after his daughter wrote an open letter publicly shaming him for being part of that legislation. She asked why her dad would, quote, openly attempt a policy that elevates hate and hurts my family and friends. Her dad responded that the bill he had co-signed was, quote, against our Lord's command to love our neighbors. I have asked for my name to be removed from the bill. The Kansas Republican bill would define LGBT marriages as parody marriages and cut off money for processing paperwork for such LGBT couples. The daughter now praises her lawmaker dad for having the strength to do what he did, perhaps setting an example for his colleagues. Kansas' new Democratic governor is expected to veto the bill. Hildy Kate Lisiak became famous worldwide this week thanks to a viral video of her encounter with the town marshal of Patagonia, Arizona. Hildy is 12 years old, a budding journalist whose father is a professional journalist. Hildy has broken stories about bank robberies, alleged rapes, and other crimes in her self-published paper, The Orange Street News. She was following a new lead when the marshal pulled up to her bicycle in his white Chevy Silverado to say that a nine-year-old girl, she's 12, shouldn't be hanging around crime scenes. He said he was concerned she'd get hurt with a reported mountain lion in the area. She told him she's media. He answered, I don't want to hear about any of that freedom of the press stuff. And then he threatened to have her arrested and thrown into a juvenile lockup, jail for a 12-year-old. The marshal also threatened, if you put my face on the Internet, it's against the law in Arizona. It's not. Hildy, the journalist, got all of this on video. In the end, the marshal said he'd be getting in touch with her parents and drove away. That video made Hildy Kate Lisiak famous, and she will be even more so when she becomes the subject of a new TV mystery series on Apple TV. The marshal's intimidation of Hildy riled some people, but Hildy cautioned folks against not posting the marshal's personal information online for revenge. Quoting the 12-year-old, my focus is on protecting our First Amendment rights. Quoting the head of the state's First Amendment coalition, one can only imagine what stories she'll be turning out once she has a driver's license. Strong girls become strong women. In the midst of the madness this week, the Democratic-controlled House, during a break in the Cohen hearing, passed the most dramatic gun law reform bill in more than 20 years. Among other things, the bill would require federal background checks on all gun buyers, a move favored by 9 out of 10 Americans, including gun owners. A companion bill expands to 10 days the wait times, also known as cooling off periods. The vote comes as the NRA is weakened by financial concerns and in closing federal investigations involving Russia. This new gun control bill will likely never be brought to a vote in the Senate, at least until after the 2020 elections. 
three more gut punches to the planet this week. A chunk of our fifth largest continent is about to break off. The continent is Antarctica, where the icy shelf has cracked as a chunk twice the size of New York City breaks away. Scientists say the massive iceberg could break away in the next few weeks or the next few days. This is happening in cities all over the country. Carefully sorted recyclables left by the curb by dutiful citizens only to be burned by the collectors. In the past three months, according to a report in The Guardian, only half the recyclables in Philadelphia are getting recycled. The burning of recyclables has increased sharply since the Trump trade war that prompted China to ban U.S. imports of recyclables, especially since China, too, is drowning in them. Up until recently, China was taking about 40% of our paper, plastic, and other materials. China now insists that imported recyclables be completely clean and completely sorted, an ability that most cities don't have or can't afford. The people who live near the incinerator in Chester, PA, say they're worried about the air their kids are now breathing. The burning of plastics and other things release nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, and tiny fragments of debris that can get into the lungs. Solutions have yet to be found. The White House has set up a new panel for climate change that will, of course, include three scientists who question the severity of climate change and question how much mankind has to do with it. It's the Trump administration's most dramatic move yet to take on the science that greenhouse gases drive global warming and the dire consequences await unless we act quickly. Greenhouse gases are mostly created by the fossil fuel industry, oil, gas, and coal, all darlings of the Trump administration. In 2003, the Pentagon said that climate change, quote, should be elevated beyond a scientific debate to a U.S. national security concern. The Pentagon warned that climate change could lead to war and mass immigration in pursuit of food and water. The Federal Advisory Committee Act requires that these kinds of committees, such as the one just set up by the White House, it requires that these committees be made public, meet in public, and that their actions be recorded in the public record. The new White House panel is part of the Trump National Security Council. Therefore, this new group will obey none of those rules and Trump's Security Council has no comment about that. Concrete. It's everywhere. When I was a kid, my dad was a municipal materials inspector, making sure that the proper materials were being used in the proper amounts to make streets and bridges safe and to make sure taxpayers were not getting ripped off by dishonest contractors. Still, I was shocked to learn this week in The Guardian that if concrete were a country... It would be the third biggest producer of climate-threatening carbon dioxide. Only the nations of China and the U.S. produce more carbon waste than the nation of concrete. And concrete is being poured at the rate of more than 19,000 bathtubs full every four seconds, 24-7, 365. It is the second most used substance on the planet after water, which is also used to make concrete. These are things to consider in case we do get around to improving the infrastructure that has crumbled in the decades since my dad did the best anybody knew how. It may also be time to consider alternatives since we've come to rely on concrete to keep us sheltered from natural disasters and military attacks. It helps keep our feet dry. It is literally the foundation of modern construction. Near the quarries for limestone and cement in India, 
The dust in the air amounts to 10% of all air pollution on top of the exhaust from the trucks carrying those materials away. And then there's the sand also used to make concrete. The mining of that sand is eroding the world's beaches at the hands of an industry increasingly controlled by mobsters. There's much more detail on this story at The Guardian's website. In a separate article, the paper reports alternatives are emerging, including wooden skyscrapers in Vancouver, Vienna, Norway, and soon Japan. Scientists and construction engineers are also scrambling for new and more planet-friendly construction materials. In the meantime, pardon our dust. Dust and chemical-filled smoke are what our first responders breathed as they looked for survivors and victims in the 9-11 attacks. It has been four years since John Stewart talked to a New York firefighter and two other men about it on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This week, Stewart returned, seated next to three empty chairs. One of the men has died of cancer. The other two were too ill to make the return trip to The Daily Show's studio. Stewart used the occasion to, in his inimitable style, lambast the nation's lawmakers in both parties for still not acting to help these first responders with health care. This wasn't a first. Over the years, Stewart has been the loudest voice on Capitol Hill in defense of those first responders. As the government assistance for these men and women runs out again, Stewart is back on the Hill asking that the funding be made permanent for the victims and their families. Influenza is still making its annual sweep across the U.S., but with an unfortunate twist. When the season began, the flu was mild and the vaccine worked very well. But now a more severe strain of flu has appeared and it accounts for nearly half of all the new cases. Quoting a CDC researcher, there's still a lot of flu to come. In this week's recalls, 86 tons of Boston Market frozen meals from grocers throughout the country. The company that makes the meals for Boston Market says there may be bits of glass or plastic in the boneless pork that's shaped like pork ribs. They're in packages dated Best Buy this coming December, January, and February. Don't eat them. A new radio astronomy survey has revealed some previously undiscovered galaxies. 300,000 newly discovered galaxies. They are all displayed on a new map produced by an international team of astronomers. If the truth is out there, the haystack just got bigger. A little closer to home, Virgin Galactic Friday sent three people to the edge of space and brought them safely down to Earth. NASA defines the edge of space as 50 miles up. Virgin Galactic's Unity made it to 56 miles up. And they did orbit there for a bit before heading back to the Earth's surface. On board was a first-timer, including the first woman to enter space on board a commercial vehicle. Beth Moses is Virgin Galactic's chief astronaut instructor, and she was experiencing true weightlessness for the very first time. The United Methodist Church is a divided Methodist church and may be headed for a split after a vote to tighten the church's ban on same-sex marriage and gay clergy. Methodists and Catholics are in a similar situation in this respect. They are both worldwide, and laws and cultures vary from one nation to the next. It's one reason why there is no easy, singular, worldwide answer to the Catholic problem, and it's why there's a severe crack dividing Methodists. Methodists on other continents are more conservative in their religious views than Methodists in the U.S. 
This week, the entirety of the church voted to strengthen its ban on homosexual clergy and LGBT marriage. Conservatives have already left the Episcopal Church over gay rights. The Presbyterians have split. Methodists may be next. Without a split, the Methodist Church would remain the second biggest Protestant faith in America behind Baptists. The vast majority of Protestants are of other Protestant faiths, neither Baptist nor Methodist. It has been another rough week for the Catholic Church. It began with the end of a Vatican meeting on sex abuse, upon which the Pope called for an all-out battle against the abuse of minors, but made no proposals as to how that might be accomplished. That was a breath-catching disappointment for victims who were hoping for details. The next day, a close advisor to the Pope, Cardinal George Pell, was convicted in Australia of child sexual abuse on three choir boys. Pope Francis, who had once publicly praised Pell for his honesty about child sex abuse, has not yet commented on Pell's conviction. It started with a health department inspection at a day spa in Jupiter, Florida. The Orchids of Asia Spa is touted online by some of its customers as a rub and tug. And for the past eight months, a state health inspector has been alerting police to what appeared to be a human trafficking operation. The inspector said she found evidence that at least some of the women employed there were living there, perhaps being kept there, preparing their meals, and sleeping on the very massage tables where their customers found relief. The women were on call around the clock with no days off, more prisoners than prostitutes. Detectives pulled bags out of the dumpsters out back and found a torn-up ledger, credit card receipts, and napkins stained with semen. A search warrant turned up surveillance camera video of a naked Robert Kraft, the owner of the Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Video shows the 77-year-old had gone there at least twice. Experts called it a textbook case of human trafficking with some 7,000 such businesses across the country. Documents show Robert Kraft was at the spa on the night before and the day of the AFC championship game last month. R. Kelly this week turned himself into police after being indicted on sexual abuse charges and then raised the $100,000 bond to, among other things, visit Chicago's Rock and Roll McDonald's and sign autographs. The 52-year-old Grammy-winning singer, however, is apparently about to see his party end after decades of alleged sexual abuse of scores of teenaged girls. The case involving four women includes 10 criminal accounts for which Kelly could face up to 70 years in prison. R. Kelly's lawyer says he believes all of the women are lying. R. Kelly was indicted after videos showing him having his way with a 14-year-old girl. Two men who've accused the late Michael Jackson of sexually abusing them as kids are at the center of a new HBO documentary that's drawn a lawsuit and a public response from the Jackson family. Wade Robson met Michael Jackson at a dance contest in Australia when he was five. James Safechuck met Jackson during the filming of that Pepsi commercial when James was nine. Today, both men are adults sharing details in the film Leaving Neverland, which tells only their side of the story, but it is damning. Both men say they were molested by Michael and told that he'd never done this with anybody else, but that he chose them because he loves them. They say he told them not to tell others because no one would understand. Robson and Safe Chuck believe they were two of many boys abused by Jackson. Jackson's surviving brothers say his accusers are all about the money, that with Michael, it's always been about the money. Back in Chicago, actor Jesse Smollett is facing up to three years in prison for paying two men to help him stage a fake attack. 
Chicago police say Smollett's motive was greater fame and higher pay for his role in TV's empire. That role has now been eliminated by the show's producers. Smollett's bond was also set at $100,000. He'll be back in court in about two weeks. Passings and passages in the music world include Peter Frampton's farewell tour this summer and fall, starting in Tulsa and ending in San Francisco. And Peter Tork of the Monkees has died at age 77 from a rare cancer seven years after the death of lead singer Davy Jones at 66. Mickey Dolenz and Mike Nesmith are the band's surviving members. Dolenz and Jones were actors, but Nesmith and Peter Tork came into the band as musicians. Nesmith says Tork should have been the lead guitarist, not him. Originally considered for Tork's role in the TV show was Stephen Stills, who executives deemed was too snaggletoothed for the role. Shortly after Sunday night's Oscar show had gone off the air, the man who'd won Best Actor had gone off the stage. Bohemian Rhapsody star Rami Malek was injured in the fall as he protected his award from damage. He was treated at the scene by paramedics, but not seriously injured. Green Book won Best Picture, which clearly upset the director of a more sophisticated movie about race relations, Black Klansman. When the winner was announced, Spike Lee jumped from his seat and headed toward the exit at the back of the auditorium. He thought better, returned to his seat, but then turned his back during the acceptance speech. After losing Best Picture again with what's considered his masterpiece film, Lee declared, I'm snake bit. He did, however, win for Best Screenplay. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World is the big movie in the U.S. and Canadian theaters this week. Dragon opened with nearly $56 million dusting all the competition. Many of the Oscar winners are in or will be back in theaters. For previews, locations, showtimes, and tickets, just click that Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. This time of year, along the beaches of Brazil at the mouth of the Amazon River, the tide, twice a day, washes inland the ocean's garbage including trash from ships all over the world. This is also how and why fishermen walking through a mangrove forest found the decomposing body of a baby humpback whale in the forest. Video of a whale in the middle of the forest went viral around the world, people wondering how it had gotten there. And now we know. It wasn't aliens or any of the other theories. It was the ocean. A 13-foot tide carried the gas-bloated whale ashore and pushed it inland. And now we know. The Cozy Hollow School, an hour north of Laramie, Wyoming, is opening this fall for its new incoming kindergarten class. The class includes one student, not just for kindergarten, for the whole school. The school district is spending $75,000 to reopen a shuttered school in the middle of nowhere to, as required by law, educate the children, or in this case, child. And in the winter, the road to Laramie is frequently impassable. The school had to be provided. The district has another one-student school for similar reasons at another seventy-five grand a year. The district says it tried live-streaming classes to the remote children but found that that didn't work well, especially with kindergartners. Speaking of remote places, try spending the night at the gas station on Highway 304 outside of Austin, Texas. It's now a bed and breakfast, this weathered former gas station that served as a filming location for the 1974 horror movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's a gas pump and the original Coca-Cola machine and a van out front to replicate the one in the movie. 
Inside, four cabins available for short-term rentals. There's also a restaurant where visitors can buy horror movie merchandise. No word on whether an overnight stay includes the sound of a chainsaw. From our What is Wrong with People department, a California driver this week learned the hard way not to park in front of a fire hydrant. When Anaheim firefighters had to fight an actual fire, there was only one way to get to it, through both of a car's backseat windows. There wasn't room to run the hose over, under, or around the car, so firefighters went through it. The driver, by the way, will also have to pay for towing, the impound fine, and a citation in addition to buying new rear windows. Firefighters later posted videos online of the hydrant, the car with the smashed windows, and the hose that ran through the back seat as a warning to others not to park in front of a fire hydrant. Considering the nature of the news of late, it maybe wasn't the best idea this week for a nail salon owner in Ohio to name her new shop Hand Jobs. The owner says she'll go to court to defend her right to call her business that. In Britain, a nudist group hopes to set a Guinness World Record by sending 103 people or more round the bumpy Grand National Roller Coaster Track at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. The existing record was set at the Green Scream Roller Coaster at Adventure Island in Southend-on-the-Sea in Essex. Participants are asked to bring a bag to store their clothing in and towels to sit on. Afterward, the riders will celebrate at the water slide at Sandcastle Water Park, reserved for the nudists for three hours, who will then presumably not be sitting on towels. And finally, off-duty police officer Gerald Johnson noticed that the dinner crowd at the Meteor Buffet in Huntsville, Alabama was getting restless. Diners had been standing in the crab leg line for more than 10 minutes and broke into a frenzy when the food finally came out. A fight broke out, a brawl, really, with plates shattering all around. The cop says customers were using serving tongs like fencing swords. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by... The Realm Network.